start to put tension on my string drawback, I was like, okay, I'm gonna smoke. It's him. You can look at the horns when he's dead. I'm, I'm in, you know, in the zone. Let the arrow go is perfect. Uh, when they lose their front shoulders, yeah, you start, yeah, that's how you know. What's going on, guys? This is another episode of the White Cat Outdoors podcast. Thanks for hanging around. Uh, me and Nick are in the studio tonight. Tom decided to be a bum and not show up, as he does quite often. He was actually feeling under the weather, so he had a little bit of an excuse, I guess. Yeah, that's all it is, just an excuse. But uh, we found a replacement for him. Uh, we actually, we've talked about you before on the podcast a couple of times, Clayton. Uh, like I just said your name, Clayton. Uh, you are, we've, uh, we did an episode last year after we got back from gator hunting with you. So okay. uh, guests are somewhat familiar with you, but uh, why don't you can just say, you know, introduce yourself, tell a little bit about yourself, what you do, how you got into the outdoors. So obviously you are an obscene, avid outdoorsman, so... Yeah, my name's Clayton Schlitt. I'm from Vera Beach, Florida, and uh, basically born born in the outdoors. I've been hunting and stuff with my dad since I was a kid, and the older I got, the more I got into it, so it just uh, mm-hmm. stemmed from there. I think, I think you said you uh, your first like a vehicle was actually an airboat, didn't you? <laughs> well, I did actually have an airboat before I had a truck, yes, but... <laughs> Yeah, my dad would uh, drop me off at the marsh, and uh, or I would had a older cousin or a couple older friends that had a driver's license, and we would go airboating. Yeah, I had mm-hmm. uh, I definitely had an airboat before. I matter of fact, I had sunk my first airboat before I had a truck. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so it was definitely definitely a learning curve, but we had a lot of fun. And I, I man, I wouldn't trade my airboat for nothing. Still, still to this day, I just got done. Since y'all were gator hunting with me, I had a mm-hmm. whole pretty good accident and uh, had a motor mount break and torched things up pretty good. So we had yeah. to do a whole new rebuild and uh, she's pretty much brand new right now. Nice. So where did your uh, hunting or love for the outdoors start? I know you said you've pretty much been your whole life, but what uh, species or what kind of uh, hunting so, were you into? So we hunted hogs mainly as kids growing up. We had dogs and uh, we just we would travel the state we had buddies and people we'd talk to from one end of the state to the other and had some friends live in georgia and alabama throughout the years we all kind of all over the place but uh man we would do it four nights a week freaking sometimes more sometimes seven and uh is all we did for a long time and i got a good handful of buddies that are still into it but uh i myself don't do it anymore but Mm -hmm. um I chased, chased them things through swamps for a long time, and then as life got busier, I just didn't have the time, and the dogs were really starting to sit around, so uh, at some point, you're just being cruel to the dogs, mm-hmm. and uh, they ain't getting out to go the way they want to go, so you gotta... gotta reevaluate a little yeah, bit. Yeah, gotta reevaluate. So, what uh, what were you doing with the hogs? And it- we would uh, sell them mainly. Um We'd catch them live, and we'd tie them up, throw them in a hog trailer, and then we That's had several. Be a process in itself. Right? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, just like everything, you know, nine times out of ten, it's way off in the woods somewhere, you know. So you tie it up, you drag it out, you get your dog secured, and uh, we used to carry these hog trailers, and we have swamp buggies and all that good stuff. So we we can usually get pretty close to them, mm-hmm. and uh, we would get anywhere from $50 for any old meat hog to $100, $150, depending on how big of a trophy hog it had some real nice teeth. So we would, uh, mm-hmm. we'd sell them to these, uh, little fence, uh, outfits. They would have like maybe, I don't know, several hundred acres fenced in or something. Some of them a little bigger, some of them a little smaller. And, uh, they would basically turn them loose in there for like a put and take kind of deal. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that's that's about it some mm-hmm. places you know most of the places we were catching them we had to take them out now if it was somewhere way back in there where we couldn't 
it was going to be a real bummer to get it out. <laughs> Sometimes we would just dispose of it and uh, mm-hmm. get out of there because most of the time they didn't. If you started turning them loose, they would they'd find somebody else coming there. They didn't. They yeah. don't want them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you kind of gotta. Whether you want to or not, you kind of got to deal with it however the landowner wants. Yeah. So you don't lose access to the property. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we were young, you know, so it was, it sometimes could add up to a lot of money, you know. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's talking with you. That's just crazy to me because, like, we've talked, you know, we were just talking before we hit record about coon hunting and stuff that we do up here. And we were always able to make a couple bucks at it here and there, but nothing crazy. But we don't have anything up around you know, Northwest PA anywhere up here, like you do back home with hogs. And you've talked about all the money you could make frog gigging and stuff. So it's a completely different world for us to talking with you about that. Like it's totally foreign for us to think of actually being able to make a decent chunk of change off of doing shit like that in the outdoors. It's like living off the land, but not, you know, farming. It's a different style. (laughs) For sure. Yeah, Yeah. we, uh, I definitely paid a lot of bills over the years doing that kind of stuff when I was younger. I don't do it anymore um i do it more as a hobby now because mm-hmm. um, i got a pretty good little construction gig going on um back home but uh there for uh right out of high school me and a couple of buddies live not not five miles away from the marsh you know and you could and uh lived in the swamp yeah literally lived in the swamp and you could go out there and you could catch you know on a real good night your best night you'd catch 80 somewhere between 80 85 pounds of frogs you know and they'd back then we were getting about 650 a pound for them mm-hmm. if uh to the wholesalers you were saying to right? the wholesalers selling them in that bulk you know but then if we would sell them to uh some of the local guys they would pay a little bit more about somewhere between 10 or 12 mm-hmm. but you couldn't get you couldn't sell them 80 pounds you know if you had 80 pounds of frogs you had to go to the wholesaler and you'd get 650 for them mm-hmm now you said it's it's not just as simple as catching them too. You got a lot of cleaning to do before you can sell them. <laughs> oh price. yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, that's that's for sure. You definitely you spend just as much time cleaning them, if not more, than you do catching them. And uh, it's a heck of a process, man. I mean, at that time, I would I'd go to work all day, and I'd come home, I'd clean my frog from the night before, and then I'd, I'd go frogging again, and then it's just a repeat process. But uh, so I, I do want to kind of touch on it because I haven't talked to you about it yet, but like what was your method for frog gigging? Because we do it up here um, on a much smaller scale, um, and I did yeah. find out that the frogs you guys get down in Florida taste a hell of a lot better than what we got up here. <laughs> yeah, um, pretty much all we're doing is walking the perimeters of ponds and stuff. We're not – Once in a know. while in a canoe or yeah. something, but what, mm-hmm. are, what are you doing frog gigging all night to get 80 pounds of frogs? So Florida's basically, you know – was underwater until they figured out how to drain it so um it's it just consists of a bunch of rivers and marshes all down through um i'm on the east coast right there and the particular water that i do spend most of my time on Mm -hmm. is uh the upper st john's river basin and it starts there and that water flows all the way out to jacksonville but um we just we so there's these big marshes and i got a frog chute what i call it it goes on the front of my airboat there and it's got a little prong on it and you got a frog gig which has got four prongs on it so you just you drive around with your headlight and you their eyes light up white and you gig them and then you just put them try to get that prong right between those four prongs on that frog and it pulls off and the frog slides right down that chute in a bag and uh (laughs) you just pretty streamlined operation yeah yeah it's uh not something i came up with but they've been (laughs) doing it for since forever Mm -hmm. but uh but yeah i just followed suit it's a it's a foolproof plan it uh it works real good you got pretty pretty accurate with your frog gig after 80 pounds of frogs (laughs) Uh, yeah 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 you uh you don't miss many really it's uh yeah it's amazing how you get to you get pretty dialed in there but we noticed, you know, with the lights and stuff, the frogs pretty much freeze right up on you. You can... Yeah, they we, do. It, uh, if they... Uh, I can always tell if somebody had been in there gigging them frogs before because if, if there had been somebody in there before, they'd be light shy. And as soon as you hit them with the light, the closer you get, sometimes they'd start going down. And a lot of times they just pop right back up right next to where they were. But if nobody's been in there, yeah, absolutely. You just can freaking crawl right up to them if you want Mm-hmm. Is there any um, season or bag limits or anything like that There's down not. there? 
Nope. So up here, there's only it's a short season in the summertime, and I don't believe there's a bag limit. There is um, a bag limit on some types of frogs. Some types. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I guess what species are you gigging down? What were we eating? Bullfrogs. Bullfrogs. Yep. Yep. Those are. Uh, that's what we gig down there, and there's there's no no season, no limit. Just uh, as much as your heart can handle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, anymore, I just like to gig some, bring them up to friends like you guys, and uh, they're they're a tasty treat. I don't no doubt. I don't put myself through the torture of cleaning frog legs <laughs> for six eight hours anymore. Yeah, I can't imagine because we've talked like what little bit of gigging we do is it's a pain in the ass just cleaning a few pounds of them. So oh, yeah. I can't imagine having sixty eighty pounds of them to do in one night. Yeah, not you know those were your best nights. Your average good mm-hmm. night would be forty fifty pounds, but uh, every once in a while you would. But still, still more than I care 40, to clean. <laughs> yeah, even at forty fifty pounds, you you really got. I was more. shocked at. Uh, how good they are i mean because mm-hmm. like, like up here we, you know we eat them they're all right um but them frog legs we ate the other night were i mean just top tier they were phenomenal yeah they you won't i mean the water's good clean it's all drainage like i said so it's filtered not, there's no it's all all gets keeps moving you know nothing stagnant mm-hmm. there so let's uh kind of transition into the gators too because i think that's always that's something that's totally out of our realm you know that we yeah you, we never see that up here um, and I guess how'd you get it tangled into that? And well, I mean, I got a picture of me sitting on a freaking eleven foot alligator when I was four years old with my teddy bear, you know, that my dad killed. So it was pretty much just uh, as soon as I got old enough to go with him, it was we were mm-hmm. there, and it just and then I, now he he don't he won't go gator hunting. My dad anymore. Mm-hmm. He don't he don't he says I ain't catching no stinking alligator. <laughs> but I still, I still go. I still get the tags, and I like to take people. I took Whitey mm-hmm. and Frank. Obviously, you know about yeah. that. And uh, so it's it's a good time. It's it's fun, man. You get on those big alligators. It can be frustrating at times, um, but it's not as easy as it looks in the shows. You know, for us because we can't use hooks and stuff. So we use these dowels, and the yeah, baits pull out. Yeah, the bait. We got this little wooden dowel, and it's got to be smaller than two inches. Um, and you put a piece of whatever you want to use for bait, and they they swallow it. But alligators got the ability to regurgitate something. So as soon as they want to really get rid of it, they can usually spit that thing out. So uh, so it's, it can get pretty frustrating, as they've seen. We did it. Mm-hmm. We had a yeah, no lot doubt. of alligators on that thing, and they uh, they pop out. But if you're in some shallow water areas, you can get a harpoon in them. That's the best way. But if you're hunting in some deeper water, that's that's pretty hard to do too. So, I mean, what's it like aiming with a harpoon and stuff on a gator? Like, are they pretty skittish when you come up on them? Yeah, or how does that work? absolutely. Yeah, when you're coming up on them, they're they're working on getting away from you, and uh, that's a little bit harder because you're not you're not you're throwing the harpoon like because you're trying to. So it's actually leaving your hands when you're gigging a frog. You keep it in your hand the whole mm-hmm. time, and you just gig the frog, put it in the shoot, you know. But when you're throwing that harpoon at that alligator it's actually leaving your hand and it's got a buoy tied to it and there's a whole rope in there so all that's got and you're driving the boat at the same time (laughs) yeah so all that's got to leave the boat and drive the boat and hit the alligator all while you're you know going 35 miles an hour probably not that fast it's probably more like 15 20 but still it's uh it's not an easy task Mm -hmm. and what uh i guess like i know obviously gators ranged bunch in size but like what, what's your target i guess what are you after because you only get you know a yeah. handful of tags maybe two tags or whatever so yeah. what are you trying to kill when you go out there depending on the area i got some areas that i really like to hunt so the way it goes when you apply for the tags is you get x amount of options to apply for i've seen it they keep changing and it was i don't know i think this year it was like Somewhere between 8 and 12, I don't remember exactly. But you basically put your first choice, second choice, third choice, all the way down the line, and then you go down and you get it in the preference. But anyways, I got a couple, probably my top three options. You know, if I get one of those tags, those are good areas, and I I won't kill anything smaller than 10 foot, you know. but That just sounds huge. Yeah, (laughs) you know, and it's not hard to do in those areas. But then you get lower on the list, you know, then – uh i try anything over eight foot really starts looking like a nice alligator in my opinion Mm -hmm. so if i can get an eight footer that's ideal but Mm -hmm. uh 
honestly, the ones, the six, seven footers, they eat the best. But gotcha. If you're just looking to eat one, I kill. I try to kill a smaller one, but I don't usually. Like I said, I don't usually kill them myself anymore. I bring somebody. I make a, once I find out the tag. I have tags. I'll invite somebody. You know that mm-hmm. doesn't get the chance to do it all the time, and they because uh, they really enjoy it. And just like you said, you don't have access to that stuff up here. Yeah, I've killed so many of those things. It's crazy. So. I rather I rather try I try to take somebody that doesn't get to do it very mm-hmm. often or yeah. ever. It's kind of funny when you think yeah. about it. Like with us never doing it, we hear about you doing it, and it's like, why would you not be out there doing it all the time? But it's like right. us with certain things up here, we do it all the time. We're used to it. It's not like that off the wall for us to do it. So we're like, yeah, it's whatever. So if we get someone that like same thing, friends from out of town that want to do it, we're like, hell yeah, we'll take you do it all day long. But it's not something that we go do all the time for ourselves because we're just so used to it. And it's the same thing with alligators. You, you grew up in it. And like you said, when you were four years old, you were sitting on the back of an alligator. (laughs) So what, uh, is there anything else to eat on the gator besides the tail? I know you prepped up some phenomenal gator tail the other night, but you know, with 11 foot, I mean, I don't know how percentage wise, how much that is tail, but is there any other meat on a gator that's edible? Yeah. The whole thing's edible. I mean, it's just like any other animal that you Mm -hmm. kill. It's the same meat that, um, is in the tail runs through the whole animal, but there's just not a lot of it. Like, so when we usually, when we skin them, we skin the legs out and, uh, all their, all the meat around their legs is good. You know, it's just a little darker. It's dark meat usually. And then the jaws, the jaws are real white meat. That's actually, that's a piece you really want to make sure you get. That's a real good piece right around the jaws. And then, mm-hmm. uh, and then basically there's, depending on the size of the alligator, they got tenderloins right down their spine. Um, but they're usually, even on a big alligator, they're usually pretty small. But if you got the whole thing skint, they're worth grabbing, you know, it's definitely oh, yeah. a few pieces in there. Uh, or back straps, rather, not tenderloins, but uh, it's basically just like your average animal, you know. I mean, front legs, back legs, neck, ribs, back straps. I guess I, I'm terrible with like the anatomy of like reptiles and stuff. Like, I didn't even, <laughs> not sure like how much rib meat you would get off of. Not much. I don't ever take it because I don't gut like I don't gut it or mm-hmm. nothing. I usually just cut the tail off, cut the legs off. And then uh, cut the cheeks off. Now, how hard is it skinning an animal with that tough of a layer of skin on it? Because, I mean, I just can't imagine it's a simple process, or at least you dull some knives pretty quick. Well, your initial cut into it, you know, you're out to your legs, like your initial cut through the hide, it's, it's pretty tough. But once you get through there, it's just like skinning everything, anything else, you know. It's just meat. You're just separating the hide from the meat, and... Uh, it's stuck pretty good. You can't peel it, you know. You got to cut it all, but mm. um, <clears throat> but it's just you just sit there and run it in there. And once you get through that initial cut, then usually uh, I always I keep I like to use like a six inch or an eight inch boning knife, and then I usually keep a steel and I just hit it with that every once in a while. But I do that with everything. I like a sharp knife. I did a yeah. did a lot of meat meat cutting for a lot of years, so I got used to using a real nice sharp knife. So I carry. Everywhere I go, I carry a knife set, and it's got several different knives that I've had for probably 10 years. I can't tell you the stuff those things have skinned. <laughs> yeah. All the way down to fish to freaking big old animals. That was the next thing I was interested in, um, was your diving uh, with groupers and stuff. I know that um, you brought some grouper up. I know you said you didn't catch them ones, but you indicated you have some experience diving for grouper, which oh yeah, to me that was probably one of the most insane things you were doing because like i i've seen grouper up close and they some of them are huge and i didn't the goliaths yeah you're not allowed to harvest those they actually did just open up a season this year in florida for the first time and it's a draw you get mm-hmm. i don't quote me to this but i think they gave they're giving away a 100 tags maybe mm-hmm. um but i honestly don't know that that's a correct answer but they gave a 100 tags this year somewhere around there to a lottery and then I haven't heard how the results have been, but we're getting quite overran with them. But they won't let us, even if you get the tag, I think the maximum, the maximum's like 40 inches or something, or 36 inches maybe. Oh, and, they don't uh, want you taking the big ones. They don't want you to take the big breeders, which is really what you should be taking because they're overran. I mean, I'm <laughs> telling you, you'll come across 
reefs where there'll be Goliath grouper on there, and they'll they'll wipe the entire reef out. It's so, uh, it's pretty bad. So, which groupers, are, like what species of grouper, are you diving for? So, we we always just we would get black grouper and uh, um, gag grouper mainly. The where we're at on the east coast was mainly gag grouper, and then we'd get a couple blacks in there, and then couple snowies and stuff but i've not my buddies were are better in at the group uh diving than i am i will say that um i've done my fair share of diving with them but them uh i got a couple buddies they're, pre they're pretty good at it one of them does it for a living and that's the one that gave me that fish yeah. up here but uh how big are them groupers that you're catching because i mean them fillets were like they were like ribeyes. Yeah, that was huge. Yeah, that was probably uh, maybe a thirty-pound fish, twenty-five, thirty-pound fish right in there. But and how my, many? I guess how many? How many fish did you have there? That I, was I, one fish. That was one fish, yeah. and you, you fed six people. Six people, and we had extra. Yeah, and, and then I sent, sent four pieces home with uh, Tim and Mike there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, it's a great. It they they're pretty meaty fish, and uh, they got to be twenty-four inches to. to kill so i mean if you kill one it's going to be a pretty nice at that point you know they're usually 10 10 15 pounds pushing mm -hmm. sometimes bigger you know mm -hmm. how deep are you're in pretty shallow water like around I, reefs and stuff I or dive, are you diving uh, when i used to dive i would we would dive right in between 90 and 120 right now oh really yeah but it's way deeper than i was expecting <laughs> yeah but my like where that fish came from from my buddy he's a commercial diver and they dive they dive quite a bit, bit deeper than that all the way up to 250 wow so, do you have to have special certifications or training to be diving that deep um there's you know honestly i've never got into that deeper diving um for I mean, just your average feels pretty deep to me well yeah but that's kind of like your recreational limits like like right there at 100 feet 110 okay. feet that's like your recreational limit and to do that you just have to you go get dive certified and they basically run you over the basics of do's and don'ts and what can happen what you know what to look out for you know down there there's mm -hmm. a few things you got to watch out for but uh but for the most part it's pretty simple you know and uh once you get into that deep dive and stuff, then yeah, there's they start mixing gases and stuff, and that's that's above my knowledge. I don't know mm -hmm. about all that. But, so, uh, so what's what's the equipment you're using and process once you find you know a grouper that you're after? I guess that you want to kill. So a spear gun, we always we have spear guns, and then it's got a power head on the end, which is a little shoots a little bullet, and uh, basically like the bang stick we use for the yeah. alligator, the same exact power head I screwed on the end of that. Mm -hmm. um pole i'll screw it on the end of my spear gun and we got a bc that's the vest that goes around you and uh then you got your dive tank and your regulator and your regulator is the hose that goes to your mouth that mm -hmm. from your dive tank so mm -hmm. you got that stuff obviously and then your fins and your mask and stuff like that and then usually if we're out there it's lobster season and then we're out there more so to catch lobster and a grouper's a good bycatch you know it's like they're definitely there but uh about i'd say once every four trips you know we get a nice grouper out there when we're out there lobster mm -hmm. diving you know but, i guess uh, i didn't realize that that's the main thing you're out there is for lobster i don't know if we touched on that no we didn't touch on that just because i didn't have i didn't have any and i haven't i haven't even been i went diving uh opening weekend this year and i i never got back out so it's mm -hmm. been uh I haven't done hardly any dive, and I think I did one dive all year this year. So uh, it's been we've kind of kind of got out of it for the time being, and then ever since ever since I started going up there to Alaska, it kind of changed the way I do things because I got to take a lot of time to do that. So I gotta mm -hmm. I gotta give up a lot of time and other things that I used to do. So yeah, what's the uh, effective range on the spear gun? Oh, uh, I'd say. No, it's just like everything else, you know. There's different levels, and the more money you spend, you can get some really nice guns that can shoot far. And I'm not sure. I mean, they can. You get custom built guns that can really. 
do some really nice shooting and i'm not going to get into all that because i've never had one but just mm -hmm. your average spear gun you go pick up at the store i'd say you'd want to keep it somewhere between 10 like 10 feet 15 feet would probably so be like pretty damn close yeah you gotta get pretty close like 15 feet would probably be as far as you want to probably not even so it's got a line on it and there's usually only about maybe 10 feet somewhere between 10 or 12 feet a uh, cord between your gun and your pole spear so mm -hmm. i'd say somewhere right around there 10 12 feet is about the most you're going to get out of your average spear gun <laughs> where are you i mean how accurate are you with it like are you aiming for a certain point on that fish or are you just aiming for the fish well yeah you obviously want to hit them in the head because you you don't waste any meat yep. that way and it kills them quickest and uh yeah, you can be pretty accurate if you got time to really line up your shot. Yeah, it's pretty. You look right. You look down, down just like the rifle of a barrel, you know. <laughs> and, okay. Uh, and it, you can get it pretty accurate because you're not. You're like I said, you're not far away. And and a lot of times, especially when the water's colder, you know, you can. I mean, you get that thing within this far of them. You just kind of stick it out. Oh, really? You. you can get right up to them. Yeah, and you just you just stick it out straight in front of you, and you just start swimming real slow. And then as soon as he starts acting like he's going to move off or get spooked, you shoot him, you know. And sometimes they'll let you get damn near touch him. <laughs> yeah, damn near touch him. Yeah. Huh. So, uh, what happened, or I guess, how did you uh, get interested and then and then involved into Alaska? I mean, because I mean, you're talking. The yeah, I don't think we said that's how we met. Was through going up to Alaska. Yes, yeah, so, I mean you're talking the as far away of as possible to stay <laughs> yeah. from Florida to Alaska. Like I mean, there's so other places you could have guided or dove into, but what was the draw to Alaska and how did you get involved in it? So when I was younger, uh, I'm gonna say about 12 years old, I went to Alaska with my dad hunting for the first time, and we went up in the Brooks Range and we were caribou hunting, and the guy that we were with hunting with he was an outfitter and he lived in florida where i'm from just oh yeah just 30 minutes up the road and i met him one day um because i caught a, a big largemouth bass and i wanted to get it mounted in my local taxidermist there in town that i used didn't do bass and uh or fish at all so i look this guy up and i go up there and we're sitting there talking to him and my dad's He's got all these Alaskan trophies, and uh, my dad's talking to him. He's like, yeah, I got it there, or I have an outfitting business. And uh, so my dad ended up striking a deal up with him to go up there, and I went up there, and uh, I started hunting with him, and me and him got to be buddies. So I'd kind of hang out a little longer and help him with some of the camp supplies and uh, camp duties and stuff. And so we ended up going up there three times in a row, um, three years in a row. So... You hunting every time, or were you helping in camp, or what? I, both? I would, uh, I would hunt, and then I would stay after my dad would leave, and I'd help out in camp for a couple weeks and stuff. So, then after that, I kind of he all, he kept telling me he's like, man, you need to come up here. He said, you got your time. He said, he said you need to come up here and guide. And I was in high school at the time, so it just wasn't, it wasn't timing wasn't yeah, right. yeah. timing wasn't right. So, uh, so we're fast forwarding. Uh, 10 years 15 years down the road and i want to go kill a moose so i'm like man and i trying to figure out how i can do it trying to figure out how i can do it and i come across this drop camp moose hunt so i go out there and uh get dropped off in the middle of nowhere me and my dad and i start calling and then you know i up to this point i'd watched thousands of hours of freaking <laughs> moose hunting videos you know and just mm -hmm. trying to teach myself and you know, so I'm out there in the woods making these sounds, hoping I'm doing this right. <laughs> and uh, I did it for six days. On the sixth day, man, I'm telling you, it was like uh, it was like he read it from the script, man. Like watching a TV show, he started grunting and fired up, came in on a string, and uh, man, it was the coolest thing I ever seen. So then I ended up looking into. You get, did get that moose. I got that moose. I har harvested that moose. It was a 55 inch bull, and uh, stud. So then I looked into, I had already looked into my Alaska guide license, and uh, that was my last requirement. I had to kill a big game animal. So I had my time, and now I had my animal. So now all I needed was a letter of recommendation. So I'm like, well, how in the heck am I going to get that? So I go, just Googled Alaska guide jobs, and uh, Mike Vanstrom, uh, Alaska lead outfitters, pops up. I called him, and 
He said, yeah. He said, let's, uh, he, I gave him a couple references, called, checked it out, and he said, yeah, we'll give it a go. Let's. But you said your here. references had nothing to do with hunting, though, right? Yeah, <laughs> nothing. To, well, I, I had a meat cutting reference, and uh, I, ha- I had gave him the reference to that guy that I worked for up there in Alaska the three years. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, so I would have worked for that guy, but by the time I got ready to go up there, that guy had retired and shut his business down. So Yeah. And he's an older gentleman. I still talk to him. Still good friends. Every year before I go to Alaska, I call him up and tell him when I'm going. And uh, but so I found Mike, and it's been great ever since. And uh, now I'm uh, now I'm hooked. I love it up there. <laughs> so you're uh, this was your, just finished your second season with Mike, right? Yes, this was my second season. And uh, I guess were you, when you were hunting with um your buddy from down in florida how close of you know were you close to where mike's at now or no totally different uh totally different parts of the state so i was up in the brooks range with my buddy from down there which is pretty far north um Mm -hmm. it's just about as north as you can go and uh we're we're on the nushagak now which is just about as it's not as far south as you can go, but it's as far south as we can go. I think the area, the units below us are uh, resident only. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, are you, like, did you deal with a lot of the natives and stuff when you were in your northern regions, or is that was that a new experience? Or yeah, that was definitely a new experience. Um, we dealt with them, so we flew into a town called Kotzebue, and we dealt with them there and but once we left there we flew it was a little different we weren't hunting on a river we were hunting he had a landing strip way out there so that we wasn't nearly as accessible yeah it was wasn't nearly as accessible so you didn't see other hardly seen other people there would be some guys every once in a while use their landing strip to drop off some do-it-yourself hunters and Mm -hmm. uh but usually that worked out we would go communicate with them and then kind of come up with a game plan and Mm-hmm. It worked out. How different was the style of hunting then from like way up there with landing in with like an air, like on a landing strip versus, you know, hunting these rivers? Like how, was that like a huge difference for you to change oh, up the way you're doing it? Absolutely. So when I hunted up there with him, we didn't really do a lot of moose hunts. He had moose, he had great bulls up there. He just, he didn't, he didn't like packing them out. He didn't, <laughs> there's just a lot of work at the time. And that was a long time ago. And you, you didn't make near the money you do now. They don't. Mm-hmm. They didn't get near the money for then than they do now. So yeah, you were basically doing way more work for uh, more or less the same, same paycheck. And we had caribou out the freaking yang up there. So that was our main gig. We did. We shot caribou just left and right all day long, every day. Mm-hmm. So what? Uh, I mean, was there when you went for Mike? Was there was there a draw for you to want to get into moose or brown bear or like? You just wanted to guide in Alaska. Like, I didn't know if there was a certain species you wanted to be guiding or... Moose, yeah. I, I went for the moose 100%. The brown bear is just kind of something that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it it helps make my time, you know, is worthwhile while I'm up there. And, uh, and getting into it, I, I enjoy brown bear hunting, you know. Depending on the style you do it, some of it can get a little monotonous. But mm-hmm. you get a good you get a good stock on a bear and... Uh, it works out it's 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 hard to beat yeah we had tim and mike told their story with um <laughs> some of their bear hunts and they said it was a absolute ball mm-hmm. yeah but i mean that was up in in the hills versus on the riverbanks which i guess is what you had yeah. said the riverbank hunting can get a little yeah it can get a little dry. boring in my opinion uh yeah. the hills is uh in my opinion way way a way funner hunt yeah um you're not going to kill the biggest bears we kill are in the river bottom, and the biggest bears, I've only been doing it for two years, but I've been fortunate to kill two nine-foot bears, and they've been both in the river bottom. And uh, every bear I've seen in my two years out of the hills, you know, stays right around that eight-foot mark. Mm-hmm. So you definitely, if you got a good got a good food source in that bottom, you got a good chance at a nice big bear. But it can get boring. You may sit there for eight nine days and not see anything but then you know when you see when you see him he a lot of times he might be a nice one mm-hmm. good deal uh is there any other um interest or anything like that that you do for the outdoors or moving forward or are you just happy with alaska right now um i'm happy with alaska right now and i obviously do my whitetail hunting back home you know mm-hmm. as soon as i get home i do 
I hit the woods, you know, pretty once a week, I'd say, which isn't as much as I'd like to, but um, I definitely get out and do my whitetail hunting, and then um, I like the turkey hunting and the duck hunting. I mean, really, you know, I just like hunting, you know. Anything to get season, outside. Yeah, I just, I just like getting outdoors and going uh, going hunting, man. I don't, I don't really have a favorite species, you know. Everything, to my opinion, I get tired of hunting one thing all the time, you know. I like switching it up. That's why I do hunt everything, you know, because mm-hmm. I get bored of hunting the same thing every time. I like to... One day I might go duck hunting, one day I might go deer hunting. Mm-hmm. That's how we are. If whatever is in season, doesn't matter what time of year it is, if there's something to go out and chase, we're all about going doing different new stuff. So Yeah. Yeah. I uh I was shocked at the size of whitetails that you've killed down in Florida. Like I Florida isn't something you think of for like big whitetails. Mm-hmm. Um but you've you've killed some really impressive deer. Um and is that is that still in the marsh or uh, it- yeah, a lot of them are in the marsh. Uh, some of them are, and then I've hunted. Uh, my dad's got a big piece of private ground that he leases down there that I've told y'all about, and uh, we've killed a few out there. And then I've been invited with some buddies on some of their places, and gotten one or two from there. Um, Your land's basically all either like a cow pasture or marsh. You don't have like any sort of agriculture or anything. No, down there. it's all cypress heads and cow pasture. Um, the people we lease from is the Mormons Cattle Company, and they're uh, they're they're the largest cow calf uh, ranch in the world, operation in the world. So uh, <laughs> so they got all their ground for designated, built for cows. Mm-hmm. At, uh, one of the crazy things you had told us I didn't realize was even a thing. Um, having more than five thousand acres in a biologist, you said that that you guys can write your own game laws yep. on that piece of property that's totally foreign to us up here mm-hmm. i mean we're obviously heavily regulated by the dnr um we also don't really have tracts of land that big up here no that one person owns yeah clayton uh, and i were talking about that today when i was taking him out hunting like someone with 600 acres that's a giant piece of property oh, around oh, here yeah. for one person to own like usually it's 100 acres or less and the 100 acre chunks are even you know there's not a lot of those either yeah you hear yeah. somebody that's got a hundred hundred acre piece up here people are like oh man you got a lot of land right mm-hmm. you know there, there's yeah, not for sure as far as i know I, I mean there may be some spots in the state but as far as i know there's nobody with you know five to ten thousand acre chunks yeah. they're all just connected because like, you all said other than public land yeah of other course, than public but, but I'm privately saying, owned he's got you know seven thousand acres they hunt that's all connected mm-hmm. you know and i think yeah. it's pretty wild that you know, you have a full t- you have a full time biologist, correct? That's there's a couple of them, yeah. On our, couple- our, wait, the the Mormons Cattle Company owns three hundred fifty two thousand acres right there in that particular spot, and we lease seven thousand of it from them uh, with twelve other guys, and I believe there's somewhere around fifty leases total on the whole three hundred fifty thousand acres. Wow. So, so is there like a biologist per? 5,000 acres or something or how you know i don't know the answer to that it's not that many but there's there may be two you know or Mm -hmm. i think for the whole thing or something like that i honestly don't know i just thought it was really interesting that they are able to write your own game laws you know you said your bag limits aren't yeah the bag um, limits stay you got to follow all the bag limits and uh stuff like that but yeah they can they can decide whether you can shoot a rifle starting opening day bow season Mm mm-hmm yeah, or even I mean I don't know is is night hunting at all is that legal down in Florida? Or? So they get some of the citrus growers and what what farms we do have down there citrus growers and now they're getting big into vegetable farms down there and stuff like that. They can get deprivation tags where they can go out. Okay. More, they're more or less nuisance tags and they can mm-hmm. kill them twenty four seven. Lights doesn't matter. Thermal they mm-hmm. can do whatever. That's but wild. It's pretty uncommon for you to see that anymore. Okay. They uh, used to be a little bit more popular, but now it seems. Like they, because uh, people really would take advantage of it, you know, and really put yeah. a burden on some deer. So it's mostly um, like uh, seasons and weapons that you can use is what they're adjusting right. for you guys. Yeah, so they can't change. Like the season still starts on the same day as everybody else and ends on the same day as everybody else. It's just the weapons we use, I guess, is the big thing. What the they're, big they thing. can dictate. So, yeah, so mm-hmm. we start hunting opening day of what everybody else has to shoot a bow, you know. Anybody on that particular lease, on any of the 350,000 acres, can shoot a rifle mm-hmm. if they wanted to. They have the ability to make that okay. Okay. Um, and then what, um, you know, like up here, we, we get one buck 
one doe, maybe two does if you're lucky, um, without special permits and stuff. What kind of bag limits do you guys have down in Florida on that? So we acreage? get a we get five. Well, the state law is five bucks per person per year, and mm-hmm. you can kill two in one, no more than two in one day. Okay. Um, on that particular piece of property, my dad gets three buck tags, and uh, you got to get. So we first. Our, it's a quality deer management. So mm-hmm. your first, you, they got to be five and a half years old. So if you shoot a deer and it meets five and a half years old and all the requirements and it's all good, you get your next tag. If you shoot okay. a young buck, they don't give you any more tags. And you can get up to three per member. Okay. Huh. So we're on our third one. We've shot two bucks this year and they've both been five and a half years old. So we got our third tag and we haven't quite found one we want to kill yet. So I think, uh, I think we might just shut it down. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we got some young bucks that the biologist aged at three and a half and four and a half. So we don't want to shoot those. So, uh, Mm -hmm. we don't have a good mature buck right this minute. So what I know, you know, the size of deer is obviously different stuff but what are the biologists i mean if you've talked to them what are they looking at um to age them and like tell you like if a biologist tells you that yeah we we believe that that's a five and a half year old deer um are you still held responsible if it comes in and it's you know say four and a half or three and a half no if the biologist tells you it's five and a half that's that's on them so that's why they that's why we have this app that's designed where we turn the pictures in, like if we get we get pictures of these deer, we turn them in on this app, and the biologist looks through the app. All, every lease on the whole 350,000 acres turns their pictures into this app, and uh, the biologist will age those deer, and they'll huh. tell you how old they are. And, okay. Uh, so what he says is, you know, it's not like um, they pull a tooth afterwards. And they do. Like, they but, do. Yeah, but they I'm, confirm it. But... but if they tell you it's five and a half, you're you're you're, good. you're, you're getting a tag, another yeah. tag. Yeah, you're good. Because that's, that's yeah, and uh, and that's what it's there for. It's so you can go out to the woods and not have to worry about. So after the first couple weeks of season, you know, you pretty much got a pictures of the majority of the deer that are in your area. So you mm-hmm. pretty much you don't have to worry about it at at that point if you see a deer you can shoot it knowing that it's five and a half and you don't have to worry about it and if for some reason it doesn't then the biologist it was on wrong on their part they told you to shoot it so i'm sure they're pretty accurate with it. i mean that's what they do for a living they look they're, at yeah they're thousands either, of pictures yeah. they're either pretty accurate or they never admit they're wrong because it never <laughs> goes the other way so are they the ones that are like obtaining those pictures or you're like say, yeah and me then you just the turn whole, them all in all the lease members yeah we turn them in on this uh mm-hmm. so they're not responsible for getting all that information no. they just receive yeah, it from they just you. go through and look at them and age all your deer that way you can comfortably go shoot them without you know have having to worry, to worry about losing your other tags that's wild that's yeah. i didn't even know that was a thing at all like that's totally not even on our radar up here that's because mm-hmm. i mean we have an antler restriction up here now that they implemented implemented probably 20 years ago now but it's nothing in depth like that yeah. and no, we like, never have any sort of contact with biologists or anything like that unless you kill a deer and just happen to want to get it aged you can send a tooth right. in but it costs money or whatever so well i, I think the difference too frank is they've got 7,000 acres. You, yeah. can, you can usually get a pretty good idea of what deer are on oh, yeah. 7,000 acres. Mm-hmm. Around here, we're, a lot of pieces, we hunt are 20 acres, 40 acres, 60 acres. and Deer are coming and going through you've there. Got, you've got so many deer that we kill in November that you haven't seen all year. Mm-hmm. So They be, showed up from two miles away. and well, I mean, Frankie's actually one of the big deer he's after. You know, one piece where he want, he's got access to hunt, and where he lives are a couple miles apart, and that bucks on both pieces. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's tough with you know small tracts of land to really get an idea of everything that's you yeah. Could, For sure, you could get a new buck on there at any time that mm-hmm. you've that you've never seen or had no pictures of. Yeah, so, and that's I'm that's sure what happens. I like hunting about up here is because you do get that. Like I, it happens down there. We'll get a new deer showed up shows up every once in a while, but. uh for the most part, yeah, you see, you watch. You the know same what bucks. you're getting. Yeah, so you might how, just it may you you may not see them for a couple of weeks, but you know they're around. around. Uh, I'm trying to get figure out how I want to word this here. Um, 
I'm totally <laughs> having a hard time figuring out how I want to ask this question. Um, but I get uh, with those bucks that you know you're targeting five and a half years old and stuff. How um, quickly can a biologist um, age them for you? Like, say, say you do get a new buck that shows up on the piece. You know, how quickly can you report that deer back to the biologist and him let you know um, that it, you know, yes, it is five and a half or it's not? So, I usually, like, I I go out on the weekends because I work during the week. Obviously, I'll go out on the weekend. I'll get my check my cameras and I'll get my picture. And nowadays, most of it's on a cell camera, so you don't yeah. even yeah. have to go out to check your cameras. And mm-hmm. uh, so, once I the picture shows up, I'll turn it in, and it, I'd say anywhere from two to five days just depending i'm not sure exactly they probably do it on certain days of the week i don't know mm-hmm. those days but uh depending on how close you are to that day they'll uh it, so but never, never more it. than about four or five days but also we have a rule that if if it's a new buck that hasn't been turned in you know and uh it just shows up and you're not sure about the age if it's if it's 16 inches wide or has a 20 inch main beam you're allowed to shoot it at that point too, and, and you won't, okay. and it won't hurt you if it's under five and a Correct. half. Okay. okay. Now, if you shoot a deer that's they aged at four and a half, that has that's sixteen inches wide and has a twenty inch main beam, you still lose your tag. Yeah, okay. I, that makes sense though, because you got to have something. You know, you get some crazy monarch that shows up there. Exactly. And you don't want to have to be like, oh, I don't know, the biologist know, didn't say I could shoot it. Right. Yeah. So it's good that there is some sort of. Um, judgment that they allow if there's a deer that's new right um and i'm sure it happens i mean oh yeah no my sister killed one uh i think i don't know two or three weeks ago she killed a really nice one 125 inch nine point they showed up uh we never had any pictures of this deer and it showed up and we we could check the cameras one weekend got the picture of it turned the picture in or her and my brother-in-law did and they aged it by that week that weekend luckily it was old enough and all that stuff they aged it at five and a half so they went out there and killed it the very next weekend <laughs> that's impressive so do you guys do a lot of like targeting certain deer i mean when you age oh, them 100%, all like yeah. you know like up here a lot of it i mean you have a few deer that you're after and stuff but a lot of deer up here it seems like it is a little bit by chance you know obviously you're, you're in the right spots but there it happens pretty regularly that people shoot deer that they haven't seen right. or were real familiar with but it sounds like with that size of property and all of the work you guys are doing with biologists you're probably targeting you know you probably have a hit list of deer that you know these are what we're allowed to kill here so that's what we're going to target oh yeah on that app you have what's called the hit list you know Mm -hmm. you got your approved deer that are have been turned in on that property and Mm -hmm. uh and we have we're allowed to feed down there and and we're allowed Mm -hmm. to hunt over feeders down there so that helps tremendously because Mm -hmm. even if it's at night those those bucks will eventually they'll show up on those feeders so every one of them will eventually show up on that feeder it may only be once but that you will get a picture of them you know so you don't have to find every good trail through the woods if you put your camera on that feeder then you will eventually get pictures of every buck that's living in in that area for the most part it's not like you guys have like big tracks of cornfields and bean fields so like when you put feed out like that it's you know, you're putting a main food source down for them. Definitely. Well, we also plant food plots. We plant uh, 12 food plots on that piece of property. So okay. Ranging anywhere from an acre to two acres. So what are you using for feed, and what kind of food plots are you putting in in Florida? So we we, we plant astronomy down there mainly. What's I, I have no idea what that is. Yeah, I've never heard I, of that. I don't know how – it's just a little weed. kind of looks like a uh, fern in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but just it only grows about that tall mm-hmm. and it just and they love it but and it grows good down there there's not a lot of stuff that'll grow real good down there so you got to be careful for that so we we feed that astronomy and then in the feeders we got uh we just feed corn usually got one on a timer with a spinner that we put corn in and then when the deer are coming up in velvet um but basically we let our feeders go out for turkey season because you're not allowed to hunt around feeders for turkey season. So mm-hmm. we let them go out so we can hunt some of the, those areas there. Mm-hmm. And uh, But 
So right after turkey season, we'll start feeding them protein out of a gravity feeder too, right next to the corn feeder, and then we'll feed them protein all the way until they start shedding out. And then once they are rubbing out, once they rub out, then we'll use usually back down off that and just feed them corn. Through. So so you can have protein out while you're turkey hunting, but not corn. No. Oh, you no, can't you have can't. you can't. No, have I don't. I turn. Yeah, that's I. We empty them when hunting season goes out. We'll probably feed them for about a, another month or two months, and then we'll empty empty the feeders out for 30 days we got all the corn's got to be gone for 30 days and then we'll start turkey hunting for those six eight weeks and then as soon as last week in the turkey season we'll fill them all back up and put our protein in and then we'll just go on our cycle mm. after that gotcha and then you pre- you said you cut out the protein once their horns are done growing and they're all rubbed yeah out. yeah it's which is i'm not saying it's a great thing to do um because you still want to it, if you can do it, um, it's good to feed your deer protein. It just it gets expensive for us. So I, I can't imagine. So we started. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we started. Uh, but you got twelve people on there, so we uh, split it up right, pretty good. So usually everybody's got one or two feed sites, so you get 20, tw- 20 to thirty feeders out there. You know, which create which is real good for keeping your deer on your property. Yeah. Because other than sure. that, there there comes times of years where there's not a whole lot of food in those woods out there because they stay pretty wet. Mm-hmm. And then what what dry land we have, they keep pretty pretty wide open for the cows. Gotcha. Well, Clayton, I really appreciate you uh, joining us on the podcast before you head back down to Florida. And it was fun hunting with you the last few days and getting mm-hmm. to meet you. Yeah, no uh, problem. Yeah, we had a ball. I, I was glad to do it. That was uh, that was the first for me uh, doing the whole flintlock thing. So that was cool to see. That <laughs> yeah. Experience that for sure. Yeah, that was cool. Definitely a change of pace. You, you described it very well. It's not the most efficient way to do things, <laughs> yeah. but that was, it, yeah, it was exactly it's a good time. Definitely. <laughs> uh, well, thanks again. And, uh, hope we run into you again. I know Frank and uncle Frank definitely will up in Alaska. And I've been talking Absolutely. to Frank about trying to get up there, but yeah, we'll have to we'll come down you. and try to catch some pythons or something sometime. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> some hogs or something. You're always welcome. But thanks again. Um, we'll cut it off here. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, make sure you guys are always doing something to get outside.